0: This is TechSnap, episode 373. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. This episode is brought to you by our three great sponsors, iX Systems, Ting, and DigitalOcean. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and it's just me for now. However... I'm about to be joined by one Mr. Alan Jude. Of course, Wes is there, Jed, and straight out of California, aspiring sysadmin himself, Jeff, will sit down. Now, Wes comes in a little bit later in the conversation because the guys sat down at a table. We had the mics on and they just started chatting as good friends often do, especially when we all share a trade. And that's managing these crazy systems and constantly watching the news. So the guys kicked off a great conversation. And now, thanks to Wes's traveling, he's somewhere beautiful in the world right now. And the fact that I'm getting on a plane here in a few hours to go back to Texas, well, it opened up an opportunity to share this conversation with you.
1: Welcome to this special live segment of uh, TechSnap. I almost said BSD now. Uh, <laughs> here live from Linux Fest Northwest, and I'm joined by my temporary co-host here, Jed. Uh, welcome, Jed. Greetings. Hi. Yes. And we have our, our also special guest, Jeff. Hello, Jeff. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, so the, the top story that stuck out for me this week uh, as I was uh, in Chris's RV driving up here, uh, I got the alert on my phone that the Toronto Stock Exchange and the Montreal Stock Exchange were shut down early. And all trading was halted uh, and there was wild speculation about what might be going on. And I was like, oh, God, it's like I was thinking a couple of minutes ago, oh, I got nothing to do. I should check on my stocks. I'm like, nope. <laughs> oh, I don't even want to know. Yeah. It's like, oh, things were going up and then the stock exchange shut down. It's like, oh. and there's like, well, was it a flash crash? And It's like, no, it doesn't seem like that. Uh, and so we got more updates here from last night saying that it was a technical issue and it wasn't caused by cybersecurity attacks. Uh, you know, they like to say that, uh, and the, the operators of the exchange said, it's actually hardware failure. It's like, isn't this shit supposed to be redundant?
2: <laughs> like you, you had one job.
1: <laughs> uh, well, cause on Friday they were like, we hope to resume trading on Monday. It's like, that doesn't sound like the level of confidence I'm hoping for. Uh,
2: that's amateur.
1: Yeah. yeah. So the operators of the Toronto Stock Exchange and the Montreal Stock Exchange says trading will resume normally uh, Monday after the hardware failure forced markets to close early on Friday.
2: Uh, well, everyone wants a three-day weekend.
1: So. Yeah. Well, and they close at like 2 o'clock or 1.30 or something like that. It's yeah. a little weird. But anyway. So the TMX Group, which is the company that runs the stock exchanges, uh, said in a statement uh, late Saturday evening that the hardware failure occurred in their central storage appliance for the trading system. So I'd love to know more about that. I'm guessing a NetApp or an EMC, some kind of SAM, and,
2: and just one of them probably, which yeah. which well, is always is a mistake.
1: Well, it, maybe it's a cluster, but you know, but does the, never work as good as you hope.
2: Yeah, like you have to do a pull the plug test on on your stuff.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what's really funny is uh, the original news article for it had related stories at the bottom, and it's like new CEO of TS uh, TMX. Uh, talks about how laying off half their employees will make them much more agile. It's like, hmm, I wonder if these two things are related.
2: Oh god, I can't help but laugh. Oh my god.
1: Let's get rid of most of the sysadmins. admins. We don't need them. All this stuff is computerized. And then, oh look, our central storage server has just fallen over. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
3: Any idea on the file system they were
1: using? Uh, no idea what the file system they are using. Uh,
2: yeah, if they're using something like an EMC or you know a real big storage appliance. That, it's all custom.
1: Yeah. So like uh, NetApp is... OneFS? No, that's Isilon. Oh, gosh. What's the NetApp file system called? I don't remember. It's not uh, worth knowing. It's a modified version of FreeBSD's UFS that supports up to 256 snapshots. So it actually has like a bitmap array, so there's a limit on how many snapshots you can have. Wow, that sounds so, like LVM. Yeah, so in each inode, there's a 256-bit bitmap that mm-hmm. indicates which if this block which snapshots this block is in. Oh. And only when it's all zero can they free the block. Oh, uh, and that's how they do snapshots on, on the NetApp file system. Uh, which I can't for the life of me remember what the name of it is off the top of my head. I don't know much yeah. about the EMC, but the NetApp is, is based on FreeBSD. And then uh, so maybe if, if, if they had a central SAN like that, what they should look at maybe is the Isilon uh, from Dell. Well, Dell acquired the company recently, which is a, a clustered thing that maybe would be more resilient to failure <laughs> than whatever they had here. Yeah, seriously. But Every, it, de- it definitely seems like you know ZFS was the answer here, as, as it is for everything, <laughs> in my opinion.
2: <laughs> well, and more than one. Yes. yes.
1: Well, exactly. You need something like the IX Systems M50, where you have multiple heads and they fail over, but you're using uh, SCSI reservations to make sure that both nodes don't try to write to the disk at once and corrupt things.
2: Yeah. yeah. Right. Although,
1: for the TSX, you might need something even more complicated than that, where maybe ZFS isn't the right answer, but whatever they had definitely didn't work in this
2: case. True. I, it's possible that they had two two uh, storage appliances and an active passive thing, and the passive one couldn't power up.
1: Yep. Uh, or, you know, the passive one was out of sync, or it got into a split-brain condition, and it's like, I don't know what is safe. I don't know that I don't have old copies of blocks that it wasn't syncing or something, uh, and they just couldn't go forward. Or, you know, maybe they're both too close together and we're affected by a, a common failure oh, yeah. of some kind.
2: Maybe there was a power search and it took them both out. Yeah, you know,
1: uh, batteries, people mm. really forget the amount of maintenance it takes for a giant UPS bank. Yeah. Uh, those had to be tested and the batteries replaced all the time. You know, like on really good ones, they have a separate sensor on like every battery uh, and they have to monitor those. So, Jeff, tell us a bit about batteries. You know yeah. about batteries?
3: <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, it really depends on what they're using, but I a mean, big part is you got to have everything balanced too. So even if a cell goes out of balance, then they're, 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 they're screwed. I mean, you got you to gotta get that thing replaced. And doing that while not taking out your power is a huge thing because a lot of these batteries uh, have pass through. So if you're going to disconnect it, you're going to disconnect power to the server anyways, right? So maybe it was that free and open uh, battery storage thing that they got going on. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, maybe that maybe that'll have a better play into something in the future where we have a standard on these UPS backups that would probably help out a lot more. Um, but for now, I'm um, guessing most of these things are probably just using standard lead acid batteries. And yep. uh, yeah, I mean those don't last forever. They definitely don't last forever. They can't cycle that many times, and they definitely need a lot of maintenance. So I can definitely fail.
1: Yeah, but like when I worked at the power plant, and I looked in there. They had a kind of. Not custom, but a little bit different UPS than you'd normally see in, like, a data center. And it literally just looked like an oversized refrigerator just full of car batteries all strung together. Uh, It had a giant switch on the side that went clunk when it switched over.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. But, like, I also heard stories of at data centers, you know, when they have enough techs in the data center, uh, (laughs) unlike maybe TMX has now, um, they walk around with a, an infrared scanner and actually check the temperature and look for the batteries that are too hot because they know those ones are the ones that are gonna give out on them when, when shit hits the fan.
2: Oh, because yeah. because your resistance inside your battery changes as it starts to crystallize.
3: Yeah, yeah. not only that, I mean, you got temperature, you got connection, uh, connection strength, everything's gotta be torqued properly, and if you're relying on, say, a bunch of server admins to take care of something electrical, uh, do they have you know electrician on staff? That's kind of something or even a, a good service tech on staff for that kind of thing because um, Nobody really wants to mess with that. I mean, that's a lot of power even though it's probably 12 volt being inverted. That's still a lot of power It could be very dangerous Yeah, yeah
1: Outside of the, the expertise of your regular, you know, rack monkey, <laughs> right? Right,
3: right, right? Yeah and it's, uh, You know you, you drop a screwdriver on those things. It's, it's a big boom. Yeah, especially something that big
2: yeah, you know, people kill themselves with just, you know, 110 in their house.
3: Yep. So,
2: yeah, it's good to be cautious around that stuff, and yep. you don't want to lay those people off. Yeah, no.
1: and, you know, <laughs> uh, I had similar experience at uh, the very first data center scale engine used, and it was actually the day we were moving out, and so we were scheduled to go there at 2 o'clock and start moving half of our equipment to the new data center, and then uh, a week later, we are going to move the other half. Um or no, it, maybe it was when we were moving the second half, actually. Um, so all the machines were configured on their next boot to switch to the configuration for the new data center. Uh, but there was a big power outage in the in the city uh, at like ten o'clock that morning. Um, and it turns out when uh, the company that so when when we moved into the data center, it was a local cable company, but a big national one came and bought it and laid off most of the people and so on. And they didn't have an on-staff electrician at the site anymore because they were planning to not have it as a data center, but just use it for their own internal stuff. And because of lack of maintenance and testing, the uh, the transfer cable or whatever between the generator and the ATS uh, had corroded. Okay. And so, uh, when when the power failed, the, everything went to batteries, and it was fine. And as the batteries ran down. Uh, the generator started up and was providing power, and the power didn't make it into the building. Uh, and then the batteries ran out, and everybody's stuff went off. And uh, eventually, the power company restored power, and all my machines powered up, thinking they were in a different city with a different uh, oh. network configuration. Uh, and back then, we were using uh, the NIS, so kind of like LDAP. So mm-hmm. the the Half of the password file and everything came from a directory services thing, yeah. uh, which it couldn't reach anymore. Uh, and so, like any command you try to do at the console, waited two minutes for that to time out before, like, so you start top, and it spent two minutes trying to turn the user IDs into usernames, failed, and then finally started. So trying to. And and the room is full. Like every sysadmin in the area is in this tiny room right now because everybody's stuff had been offline, and they're all trying to get all their stuff back online. So they're like elbowing people, and like we only had half the rack. We had the top half, and so there's somebody like trying to work underneath me at like my knees, (laughs) and I'm trying not to like hit him in the head, and I'm like balancing a keyboard on my hands while I'm working on this. (laughs) Uh, Not comfortable. Not comfortable comfortable at all. all. Yeah
2: yeah I, I remember similar timeout things when uh, I had a I had an application that did DNS lookups yep unfortunately whoever was hitting the web pages their their IP address would not resolve right and, and so just- my Apache workers were were hanging for two minutes and I was running out of Apache workers and every site on the system was down <laughs> mm.
1: Yep. Uh, Yeah, I've seen similar stuff to that as well and you definitely got to make sure you disable DNS resolution. Uh, The other one is it can also uh, play Havoc with SSH. Uh, So when a server was, uh, one I had was being, I think, denial of service attacked or whatever and it was uh, DNS would get flooded out and so I had to tune SSH to not time out. So when you first connect, SSH only gives you so much time to log in before it kicks you out. But if the DNS timeout is longer than that, then if it can't resolve your IP, you never get the chance to type in your password. Oh,
2: so, so in your SSD your SSHD config, in, config uh, you I disabled DNS. DNS no.
1: Yes, and use uh, DNS as no. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing I had done is up the uh, logging grace time to like 10 minutes. Oh, uh, yeah. But the problem is that makes those bot attacks on your SSH worse, too. So it's mm-hmm. like trying to get the right trade-off there. Yeah. It's like...
2: Did, were, you, were you allowed to
1: run it on non-port 22? Um, in this case, well, we could have. The problem is we were shelling, uh, selling shell accounts, oh, so people so were going to connect to this, and so we really 22. needed it to be the right. default. Uh, and so, and also there's like 100 customers paying to be able to log into the system, and they're all coming from random places. Some of them are from Europe and stuff, and uh, when they... Try to connect and it lags and times out. They're like, "Oh, you're a crappy provider." It's like, actually, no. It's just your reverse DNS doesn't work. Oh. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that. Yeah.
2: Any mail administrator knows the the woes of reverse DNS.
1: Yes. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, at Skill Engine we rent a lot of servers, and um, some of them we get to control the reverse DNS, and some of them we don't. And some of them it's like, well, you can email us and ask us, and we'll update it, but we haven't yet. So your, uh, your server shows up as, like, the dorsetmarket.co.uk. It's oh like, that's goodness. not us. It's just... Riff. Yeah, uh, can
2: you keep it just
1: 123.network.net? Exactly. Uh, or the other place where, you're like, well, looking at the, what this reverse DNS resolves to, this was definitely used by a spammer in the past. Oh.
3: That's great. <laughs> All
1: kinds of stuff like that.
2: Hey, guess who
3: I see? Yes. Hey. All right, get over your Wes. There we go. Now we
1: got Wes on the show, our special one-time co-host, of TechSnap. You know, Wes. Wes. Hello. Hello. You're looking sharp as ever.
4: Oh well, thank you so. Nice to see you. How's your fest going?
2: Oh, I've. Yesterday I talked
4: so much, my jaw was sore. I think that's a great sign of a successful <laughs> race <is>. fest, right? <laughs> it is.
2: Yeah. And I didn't even get all fucked up and hang hung over, you know, last night. Cause yeah. I was not, no parties. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was with the kids.
4: So. You were playing <laughs> it responsible. Yeah. Was, an example was, for the rest was, of us.
2: I was the parent. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, uh-huh. one of the parents, luckily. Yeah. That, uh-huh.
4: uh, so Wes,
1: we were talking about that uh, TSX story that we had on telegram earlier. Oh yeah. Yes. Uh, and uh, I'm just reading more of the story here in the city. um, it was their central storage server that went down, uh, and their remediation effort started Friday afternoon. And the defective device was replaced and tested. So okay. this really suggests that it. So they had a device, it failed, and they've now replaced it. Doesn't explain where's the, the backup? Yeah, where's, where's the, is the backup? Yeah, uh, you know, not not. They, I'm sure they have tape backups, but we, the, where's the secondary device? Right, yeah, <laughs> exactly.
4: For a service you expect to be running, you know, 24-7. It's only seven. the stock exchange. It's not like it's important
1: to the no, economy or no, anything. not at all. Uh, and it's it was a TMX group, so apparently they have shared infrastructure between the Toronto Stock Exchange, the Montreal Stock Exchange, the Toronto Venture Exchange, and a bunch of these other exchanges. It's like... So there's not even a lack of resources yeah, or anything like, else as an excuse. How yeah. about some sharding or something? How about each mm-hmm. of these has a separate storage backend, just yeah. so that you know one of them doesn't go up. <laughs> yeah, we don't take down the whole thing. Exactly. And if they had separate shards, and like, oh, well, let's just, you know, you can even set it up so that any one of them fails, and it can fail over to, you know, oh, right. Toronto's uh, storage backend has gone down. Switch to the they can share the montreal one right they don't have to have two for every one of these exchanges right. they just need you know some level of yes, redundancy n plus 1 or yeah. n plus 2 maybe because it's yeah. only the stock exchange right yeah they have no money
4: yes it uh, seems like a pretty simple you know operational expense as well you just you know it's another line item to the things that you need to run your business yeah i don't get it yeah uh, i'd love to know more about what they're actually using uh, as the the back yeah, end the technical details
1: yeah like we, we we kind of postulated maybe a, like a NetApp or an EMC yep, some, some kind big of fan storage type appliance. Thing. You know, uh, I have
2: I have a good feeling that maybe someone from a Red Hat got on the phone uh, offering help. Possibly, uh,
1: but you know if it was like an EMC that that's Dell now, mm-hmm. uh, uh, or NetApp is you know a giant company of itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. And they have a great quote here. TMX is committed to applying the lessons learned from this incident to help us prevent such issues from recurring in the future. Okay, commitment," says the CEO, who you know laid off half the tech staff uh, a couple months ago. Oh, is that right? I missed that part. Yeah, Uh, I saw it in the uh, related news uh, when this first came up. It's like, oh yeah, look, there's the same CEO saying, "Oh yeah, we're much more agile now because we got rid of (laughs) like half the people (laughs) we don't need." That's the secret of agile:
4: you just fire everyone, and agility happens. Yeah. Uh, so it, we're lead
1: now, guys. We're lead. <laughs> it definitely seems like it maybe wasn't the power, like we thought it was. So uh-huh. we were talking. Jeff talked to us a bit about uh, batteries and and how oh, that works, nice. and we talked about UPSs and and some fun horror stories there. Mm, yeah. uh, but yeah. of course, you know, being Texas, uh, uh, being in the current political climate we're in now, they've uh, like I think eight different times in this news story are like uh, hack is, is a hack is not to blame, and there was no cybersecurity incident. <laughs> it was just yeah. hardware failure. It's like Nothing's compromised. No data was lost. Yes. I love, I love when we see that like a denial of service attack happens. like, nobody got into our private data. It's like, yeah, that's a denial of service attack is push you off the internet, <laughs> yeah. not... It's like, if a denial of service attack resulted in a data breach, then you're doing you're wrong. You're doing everything wrong. Yeah. But at the same time, I can definitely see uh, data breach followed by a denial of service attack okay. to draw attention away from it and maybe give us some more time. but yeah, part of a
4: bigger, more coordinated effort or something.
1: Right, but in the end, you know, the exfiltration needs the internet
4: to work, yes. so you're not going to combine those two too close together. For sure. It's funny, though, I guess the perhaps the public is now trained, right? Anytime they see any sort of IT issue, they're now worried about some sort of breach. Yes. Which mm-hmm. I suppose is better than it was before, where no one cared Everyone at all about it. About but at the same
1: time... We're, we're getting the fatigue now, where yes. uh, you know they're like, "Oh, I, I don't Another need to go one. change all my passwords because I've
4: just given up on doing that." <laughs> Everyone uh, has all my information already. Nice. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. We'll never win. That's the problem. Yep.
2: M- maybe or, some maybe some tech at the stock exchange decided he would rack a new computer and uh, didn't didn't understand its power uh, requirements. So maybe, he, but he, it, he it sounds like broker. it was.
1: It was definitely the... Uh, well, they, they had faulty hardware they replaced. Oh, uh, so okay. it definitely seems like it was something with their storage appliance. Yeah. Uh, although, I wonder what it would be. That they'd have to replace like the chassis or something. <laughs> yeah, that's like, a pretty major like a fault. failed discs is one thing, and a yeah. failed power supply is another thing. But they the said they had to replace backplane? the f- failed device. And, but, Ooh. You know, and, Sounds and, spendy, too. Yeah, yeah. but... I, I wonder
2: if they couldn't actually do it because they had a service contract and it requires a, like an onsite uh, oh, yeah, like exactly a, a, vendor, a vendor so a they're
4: just li- they're limited by that response timeline. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> I could see that you're right.
1: maybe they'll renegotiate that now because yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. we need faster service yeah, yeah the stock exchange can't go down at two, uh, 130 on Friday and not opening until Monday Yeah right.
4: It seems like there's so much money involved there or, anyway. Or Just in particular, the top, yeah. what do Throw you mean a four-hour response time is appropriate? Yeah. <laughs> uh, in this case, it makes you wonder a bit if
1: uh, you know, if this had happened on a Tuesday instead of a Friday, would they have been able to get it up by the next morning? Right. Uh, oh, yeah. like they got lucky here that they had the weekend to try to get things uh, back online
4: before you know, everything went to hell. <laughs> it's funny, we don't talk that much about the technology behind, you know, all these stock exchanges and the massive amounts of data they're transferring at lightning speeds, but it sure is fascinating.
0: Yeah. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. That's where you go to learn more about IX Systems, a company that could build solutions driven by open source. I've been talking more and more about different use cases and workloads you can use IX hardware for. And of course, it's endless. They'll custom build a solution for you with their white glove approach. But let's talk about backup for a moment. That's something that's on our mind. And IX Systems has solutions that help protect your data as it grows. And we all know that your data needs to get more and more demanding. And IX Systems can help you build a system that will scale to your growth but not break the pocketbook. You can protect your enterprise storage environment and save time and money with a TrueNAS Unified Storage Array with built-in data security from OpenZFS. The TrueNAS Unified Storage Array has industry standard built-in data encryption that's compliant with HIPAA, PCI, and of course, now the GDPR. The enterprise version of FreeNAS, it's TrueNAS, the world's number one software-defined storage operating system. You can achieve better backup integrity through its built-in self-healing bit rot mitigation with unlimited instant snapshots, replication, and encryption. And of course, whenever you need it, they're award-winning, white-glove, U.S.-based support. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Support the show and grab a white paper to learn more about ix and maybe even grease the wheels up the chain in your business. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And TechSnap is also made possible by do.co slash snap digital ocean infrastructure when you need it as fast as you can possibly imagine with data centers all over the world everything is ssd based and when you go to do.co slash snap you will get a 100 credit Once you apply that with a new account, you get 60 days to try DigitalOcean. Simple and scalable. You can deploy a system that's custom-built, mix-and-match resources as you need it, or deploy my favorite system. With four gigabytes of RAM, two CPUs, 80 gigabytes of built-in SSD, and three terabytes of transfer, it's just three cents an hour. And when you go to do.co/snap, you get that $100 credit. You can make a lot of machines. You can even try something out, maybe test out a new project idea that you've had, and put something in production. They have monitoring and alerting so you can keep an eye on things, DNS management that's super easy and integrated, and of course data centers all over the world with 40 gigabit connections coming into the hypervisors themselves. And their cloud firewalls take care of all the traffic you don't want at the network edge instead of letting it hit your device. Plus they have tons of great documentation to help you take advantage of DigitalOcean. Just a couple of days ago, they posted a brand new OpenVPN setup guide for getting it going on the latest version of Ubuntu. You can find so much good documentation on DigitalOcean's site. You can deploy an entire application stack like GitLab, the entire stack, with one click. Or you can build it yourself and follow their guides if you ever need help. Just start by going to do.co/snap. Also, thank you to Ting, .ting techsnap.ting.com. That's where you go to take $25 off a device or get $25 in service credit for something that's smarter than unlimited. It's Ting. When you use less, you pay less. The average Ting bill is $23 per phone per month. It's so simple and easy. I can explain it in just seconds. It's $6 a month for your line and then your usage, your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Whatever you use, that's what you pay. techsnap.ting.com nationwide coverage which I have been testing very extensively on this road trip and that's how I'm talking to you guys right now they have no contracts no early termination fees you just pay for what you use you can use their control panel to make sure everything's copacetic and exactly what you expect disable individual services and I'm gonna recommend a phone for you the Moto G6 Ting actually has a review up on their blog right now when you go to techsnap.ting.com you can buy this high-end unlocked Android device for $224 because you get that $25 discount. It's a great value phone with a 3,000 milliamp battery, turbo charge, great screen, and it supports Moto Mods. They have a full review up on their blog. I love the Ting approach. You can bring your own device or grab one from them. They don't get in the way. They have no experience agenda that they want to push down to your device. They just let you use your phone however you want, and you just pay for what you use. TechSnap.Ting.com.
2: So, have have you guys ever uh, accidentally uh, shut off shut off a rack by plugging too much into it?
4: No, no, uh, I've done other bad things to it, but not not plugging too much into yeah. it. Not it's,
1: not too long ago, uh, yeah. our sis had been while racking something, accidentally knocked the power cable out of the switch, oh, which no. is the same as unplugging all the machines, really basically. because <laughs> yeah. uh, in particular, uh, the rack in this data center. Has a, a 10 gigabit feed that's actually a, a point-to-point link to another data center, uh, like two kilometers away, okay. which is uh, much more expensive real estate inside. So we have a one-use switch there, and that's it. It's just really? where we cross-connect to all sure. the other providers. That makes sense. And then we have a 10 gig, uh, uh, DWDM wavelength to this other data center where space is a lot cheaper. Yep. Um, and that's where all of our stuff is and, and yeah. If the switch that's plugged into goes down, then this whole uh-huh. rack is now isolated from the internet. Yes, yeah, so you don't you just have nothing. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. Yeah, I, I was racking a new server many years ago and I thought just because I had I had a place to plug it in, yeah. I had the power.
4: And this'll work this'll work just great.
2: Yeah, and then when when all the disks started spinning at once, oh. there was no power for anything suddenly. Yep.
4: Yeah. You, you see,
1: actually, a lot of machines now actually have, like, uh, the option of staggered spin-up for the hard drives. Yeah, that's cool. Because, that. uh, yeah, like, I have machines with 36 hard drives in one 4U chassis. Uh, and if all of those start trying to torque at once, that, that can be quite a power spike. Yeah, totally. Uh, or, like, my APC PDUs actually have the option that if power is lost and comes back... Start this machine and this machine, and then after thirty seconds, start these machines, yeah, and then yes, after a minute, definitely. start these machines. Uh, it's like yeah. I need the switch to come up first, uh, but you know that machine can come up five minutes later after everybody else has already done their
4: their startup surges. That's the I think that's the next piece I really want my home lab to have is a is a nice Stagger managed startup. PDU with yeah. those features. Yep. Yeah. Um, the one I have
1: at home was pretty good. Uh, I have another one where it. Lost its mind and it just says error and, and won't talk to the network anymore, and so you can't. You just can't. You can't, talk can't to it. manage it. Uh, it
4: still provides power. Yes, uh, okay, but so I've heard simple. stories
1: of ones where uh, there was uh, some component failed and the power would like fade until one of the ports would flip off, um, like the the relay would would trip, mm-hmm. uh, and then that would bring the power back up enough that it would keep going and then it would fade some more and, uh. and it's just like randomly turning off your equipment when That's you're not expecting terrifying. it. terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. And so, How long
2: uh, did it take to figure that out?
1: A while, but uh, that friend will not buy individually switched power units anymore. Yeah, I can see uh, that.
4: I mean, there's always, you know, there's, there's always a cost to the complexity of things and yeah. most yeah. of the time it works well, but... Maybe well, a higher that's failure. That's a good rate. argument a
2: for having double power supplies per server. Yeah.
4: yeah.
1: Mm. Uh, but, you know, you probably have two PDUs you bought at the same time. Yes. So uh, what's the true. chance they're both <laughs> going to yeah. start doing that to you? Well,
2: you know, each power supply goes into a different PDU. So. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, but, you know, if, if the two PDUs are the same, maybe they're going to have the same problem. <laughs> Hopefully not the same yeah. parts at the same, same time job. and you keep yeah. stuff alive. But, uh-huh. you know, that's also how you can end up tripping breakers. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Uh, one too many things go down on this side, everybody you know, jumps over there. rushes over to the other side, and then
4: that side flips And then flips no too. one has power. Yep. Yeah. There are really a lot of those factors, you know, to actually be resilient if you're trying to think about this long-term and do it right. Yeah.
1: And, you know, uh, at the, our main data center, the second PDU, or the second power drop we have is not as much power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, the first one is 20 amps at 240 volts, and the other one is only 10. Oh, okay. Um, yeah because power is expensive. Right. Yeah. Um, and most of the time, and, time, you don't need it. Yeah. And a bunch of the machines uh, don't have dual power supplies because they're really cheap. Yeah, <laughs> yep, sure. Uh, we made really compact uh, machines. Uh, although, it's funny, some of our switches, we've now decided, are important enough. They need dual power. Yep. Uh, but the switches generally don't have two power supplies. But they'll have this little connector, sometimes a weird one, sometimes a normal one, uh, so like the ubiquities have a little barrel connector, and you get like an external adapter and plug it into yes, the other I've power seen supply. Yes, i Yep. Uh, or but the the netgears or whatever, a bunch of them have like a weird connector for like a proprietary yes. redundant power supply <laughs> module that costs like half as much as a switch. Yep. Yep. Uh, not that the component is expensive, but just you only need this if you care about your switch. So we, we know can charge that you'll you pay lots. money for this. Exactly.
4: Uh-huh.
2: Oh wow! All I- right. I just learned what the screw on the back of the switch does. What's That's, that for, do? that's for lightning protection. Ah, uh, yes, a garbage oh. oh. screw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very important. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and that's rarely fun. connected. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that reminds me of when uh, lightning hit my house. Uh, so it, it came in over the cable line rather than the power. Oh, really? Because everything in my house, and the, all the computer components go through like a UPS, sure. and it's all lightning protected. But it came in through the cable line. Uh, went through the modem without breaking it, the cable modem, uh, but then zapped the switch the cable modem was plugged into, and every machine that happened to be trying to receive a packet at that precise second. So, like, a third of the machines at my house, uh, the onboard Nicks, are fried. Just fried. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Uh, and the switch never powered on again. I bet not, right? <laughs> so I had to replace the switch... Uh, and buy, like, a bunch of, like, uh, PCIe 1X uh, just regular network Nix. cards yeah. and plug them into a bunch of my computers and get all this. Uh, and so I bought this uh, surge protector for Ethernet, uh, but luckily then later replaced uh, my Internet connection with fiber. Ah, beautiful. Hey, there yeah. you Excellent. go. But I, I, I remember uh, when people used to use dial-up, especially in the small town where I lived, where that was the only option for a long time, uh, the modems getting fried by lightning mm. and surges coming over the telephone lines, like, yes. all the time. It's uh, the point where one guy actually got a uh, bought a pair of media converters on eBay, so that you get your copper connection coming in, convert it to copper or to fiber, yep. run like a foot, Just a and then bit. back to copper, so that uh, <laughs> lightning couldn't yeah, pass that point. You got an yeah. air gap right there. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's or a also light gap, I
2: light gap. Yeah. That's also important if you if you don't have a common ground between the yep. two
1: places. Yeah.
4: good point. Yeah. You
2: don't want to have a current ground loop. Going between two
1: switches because that
2: yeah. f- that can fry them.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I, I can imagine all kinds of extra complexity if you start putting wireless stuff on the top of metal towers.
2: Oh yeah, uh huh. Yeah, it would make a lot of sense to to just have a have a fiber fiber transceiver right next to it so that you, uh, yeah, you don't have you any static it. or mm-hmm. something like that. You know, high wind can uh, create static and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if if you have water damage near a connector. You don't want it traveling Ooh. the distance. Yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah. Fiber really uh, runs the world these days. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But and it's so
4: fragile. It's so fragile. And I feel like, you know, in the most like actual consumers, they don't, maybe they see it if they have a really nice internet connection, but mm-hmm. pretty much yeah. not. You know, probably these days a lot of the fiber connections too are like big condos where then it's just become switched Ethernet to your yep. condo or something. Yeah. And think- like uh,
1: in our rack even, we use mostly use the the DAX, the direct uh, oh, yeah. copper connections, mm-hmm. uh, because. Buying two optical modules and this fragile yeah. cable to run between them, or we can buy this cable that's got the modules built into it, and you know this is as far as we need to go, and uh, they don't—you don't have to worry about like bend radius and mm-hmm. stuff. <laughs> right, uh, exactly. Yeah. We had uh, that problem when my uh, business partner installed the one connection. Uh, the fiber connector is there, and then it immediately does like a 180. And it's oh. like, no, you cannot bend it that far at once. <laughs> will not work. Yeah. yeah. It's like, or will work, and then suddenly won't work. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that connection I talked about that goes from the one data center to the other. So it terminates at the top of the rack okay. uh, when it comes in the building. And then it needs to go to our switch. But no, you can't just do a 180 like that. Huh. Like They make special plastic things that are the maximum bend radius so that so you, you can, can just control them. it that uh, makes uh, sense. and stuff.
2: That's good. You know, and, uh, we saw Comcast uh, stop by our church and install a, a new line, and they were particularly concerned about bend radius in their install. Hmm. Yep. And this is just coax, so they're they're concerned about, well, about yeah, cracking uh, the dielectric. In coax. In you have
1: yeah, there's a, there's kind of a thin piece of copper and all this uh, shielding and stuff. Uh-huh. And if you bend it too much, it'll just kink and break, and then you, you won't have a connection, or you'll get well, a, a really well, sta- noisy connection.
2: Yeah, yeah, and so that that's going to reduce your bit rate. Um, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, the, the, that weave that goes on the outside, that can stretch open and let yeah. RF through.
4: Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah that would be uh-huh. nice.
2: and You also have a, a similar kind of thing on Wi-Fi radios. The We call them pigtails. You hook them up to the, the antenna, and you can get them in, you know, up to, like, 500 millimeters mm. in length or so. But, yeah, there's no circumstance where you want to kink it back on itself because that's going to break the jacket. It might not break it immediately.
4: But the stress over time. But,
2: you know, you put it inside a chassis, it gets up to, say, 90 degrees centigrade occasionally. You know, if it's ever in the sun, you know, it it oxidizes, like, all these things. Yeah,
4: totally. Yep. The daily grind of everyday service. Yeah. Uh And we we have such expectations these days, you know. I want I want my uptime to be as many nines as you'll give me.
1: Yeah, and it's, you know I want the wireless to work when there's how many people in here all polluting the the wireless yes, with yeah. their, uh, you know especially now phones and so on are like constantly doing even just little bits of chatter. Yep, all know, the time. Yeah. Checking for uh, notifications. I gotta, gotta get my pushes, Alan. I gotta
4: yeah. get my pushes. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, it's uh, and then worse is when you have devices that are pulling, right? They're constantly calling the website. Is there anything new? Is there anything anything new? Got anything for me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh, Yeah. And then times, you know, there's like eight hundred people here. Whatever, it's like, wow. If you if you just visualize the radio coming off everybody, that would be be a really
4: neat visualization to see. Yeah.
1: It'd just be like, wow. No wonder the wireless isn't working so well. We're just bathed <laughs> like, in a warm RF glow. Yeah, it's like. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. yeah putting a bunch of more APs in the room is not going to help this at all.
2: Yeah. Well, ha- having your frequencies separate, yep. that's that's important.
1: Yeah, it's exactly the problem we have at our hotel is, uh, you get those people that know just enough to be dangerous. Yeah, exactly. So they've scattered the APs across channels 1, 6, and 11. But they didn't actually make sure to arrange them so they're like not overlapping. Oh, one so, like, one and six are in adjacent rooms. Uh, or well no in this case is actually the three closest APs are all on channel six. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Defeating oh, this the, is the entire supporter over here. Uh-huh.
2: That's only good if you want to do same channel roaming. Yeah, and right. and you know a hotel there you're not going to really roam well.
4: <laughs> yeah,
1: you know I'm I'm in my room. I just want to associate with one yeah, different yeah. than an office building or
4: convention yeah. space. Yeah,
1: in the convention space maybe, but you know yeah, you're, you're slightly lucky here that you can there's there's not walls separating things too bad. Like on, on the floor here you have almost line of sight to the ceiling kind of thing. Yeah, and there's there's not anything you know giant concrete walls between things. Uh, so, 5 gigahertz works very nice in here, whereas other places, it's like, yeah, not so much.
2: Yeah, this exhibit hall has had a number of uh, Wi-Fi systems. and uh, Looks like uh, there's a
4: UniFi up there now.
2: Well, um, last year, one of the things that they had on display was their Meraki screen right at the back of the BTC. Oh, so yeah. Um, whatever Meraki is compatible with, and that's not necessarily all Cisco products either. Sure. Yeah. yeah because Meraki and Cisco, they're they're different divisions, but one of them, as as Greg Farrell would say, are the cool kids.
4: Are the cool kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, it reminds me, you know, a uh, couple other companies acquired by Cisco, like uh, the Sourcefire guys that do uh, Snort and ClamAV. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a, all FreeBSD shop, and so yeah, that's the cool kids that. inside. Oh,
4: okay. Uh, cool kids inside Cisco. Oh, wow. I, uh, it's where Dan works. That makes perfect sense. I didn't. I just hadn't realized. I know he was using FreeBSD, but yeah. he didn't let on that it was all FreeBSD. Yeah, uh, all the infrastructure that they use for for doing the security research at um, what Cisco's threat division called. Yeah. It um, oh man, I should know this because we talk about it all the time. <sighs> I forget too. Yeah. See, this is why we need Dan here. Come yeah. on, Dan. You're letting us down.
2: Yeah, just everyone watch Telegram.
4: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Will you get to see Dan sometime soon? In, a uh, upcoming conference? in June, uh, he's hosting BSDCAN. Oh, right. So, perfect. Uh, yes. We'll be there for five days or so. Excellent. Or I'll, I guess
1: I'll be there a little bit for that. And I think he's got uh, he's running the, uh, the Postgres SQL conference in the at the same venue, uh, I think it's the week before. Oh, wow. Uh, so he'll be coming up to Canada for a while pretty soon. Oh, that's... That'll be wonderful. It's where he's from originally from, but yeah. he mostly lives in Pennsylvania now. Yeah. But.
2: Which, which has been your most interesting uh, booth on the floor? Ooh, that's a good question.
4: I will say, J- Jupiter Broadcasting's got some pretty sweet stickers this year, so, yeah, you know.
2: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I've had some particularly good conversations with the uh, Silicon Mechanics guys.
1: Uh, yeah, they <laughs> have a, a, a Xeon Phi-based, uh, so not the... Uh, offload card but the actual one where the CPU is a Xeon Phi oh, so it's like yeah. 256 Waterproof. cores that's beautiful uh, oh
2: it's trippy it's not as big as you think it is it should yeah. be with that it's like y-
1: you fit 200, or I guess it's 64 Pentium 3 or Pentium 4 cores <laughs> in there and then uh, hyper threading such that each one is 4 threads yeah. oh, oh wow yeah, that's the yeah. multiplier there <clears throat> and they tried it and it boots OS. does it on top of Linux <laughs> that's <laughs> Like well, virtualized or no? Uh, that as the native processor. Oh, as the native because it's actually like sixty-four Pentium fours, sure. basically. Yeah. Wow. Because uh, it's interesting. I was just reading like two weeks ago or something. We covered it on BSD now. Um, the Knights Crossing, uh, the PCIe card version of this. Mm-hmm. Um, had some video shaders and an actual video output port, and you could use it as a video card. Although it's mostly designed to be for like GPGPU type workloads, sure. but using regular x86 instructions instead of having to you know, write special NVIDIA or yeah, right, OpenCL yeah. instructions. And uh, Intel actually made it emulate DirectX by running FreeBSD on the card. And having a DirectX program that ran as a 256-threaded program (laughs) and emulated did the DirectX calculations in CPU. In CPU. Yeah, and it worked. Yeah. That's, exactly. that's
2: that's impressive. Yeah, that is I was like, "Wow, what do, you, what do you do with an extra 128 cores?" Yeah, yeah.
1: It's I don't have anything
2: to do with those right now. Yeah, <laughs> like, uh, I can't run that many VMs. Yes, give me something really
1: paralyzable. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, something more than just MPEG encoding.
1: Yeah, but I remember back in the day, uh, like when when hyperthreading first came out, mm-hmm. and AMD was talking about reverse hyperthreading making two cores look like one really fast core. Oh, it's like,
4: interesting. Th-
1: that'd be cool nowadays, although I think it turns out it doesn't really work for caching reasons and the you, instructions that does are difficult. that's puttable and so on. Uh,
4: yeah, but,
1: you know, a lot of this, the Xeon Phi and Knights Landing and Knights Crossing and so on, end up really being cancelled in the end. Uh, but what's interesting is uh, the AVX512 instructions that we've seen added to the newer uh, Intel CPUs mm-hmm. is actually basically the Phi instruction set. Uh, and, but ported over Yeah. And- Oh. Uh, are brought forward, and so uh, all that research and so on actually did turn into something useful, and we get these highly parallelizable uh, workloads if you have vector instructions. So right. uh, we've seen like um, SHA hashing mm-hmm. and a bunch, of, and like rate calculation stuff, where you can like do 16 of the calculations concurrently, Yes. Uh, and basically kind of giving us
4: something useful coming out of uh, that project, even though it ended up being canceled. Oh, that's a, yeah. That's a good success story. I feel like that happens more often than we realize, you know? Yeah. Little pieces of things you can take and slot them into other projects. You just don't get the fanfare of, like, here's this big announcement. We released this product.
2: Yeah, about you know, 20 years ago, when I was, you know, a computer computer engineering student, mm-hmm. uh, there was, like, one machine that could do those kind of C D <laughs> things.
1: <laughs> yes. Yep. All great yeah, stuff. Yeah.
2: Now it's just like, hey, that's the next machine I'm going to buy. I don't know quite what I'm going to do with it, but damn, it's going to run Solitaire fast, right?
4: (laughs) As many games as you can possibly play at once. Well, yeah, it's like, uh,
1: remember when uh, 3DFX first came out? I think with the Voodoo 2, we could have two of them uh, pinned together. Like, one would do one thing and one would do the other thing or whatever. It's like, nobody imagined where people would be building machines with, like, four graphics cards in them and doing silly stuff or...
2: Yeah, or wow. those those um, three U uh, super micro chassis that can with hold like seven eight machines. Yeah, yeah. Eight machines. yeah, but like the power requirements, but that's like two thousand watt power yep. supply. You are churning
4: through some. Yeah, 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 making yeah, some entropy like, up in there.
2: Not only are those like thirteen thousand RPM fans <laughs> going to be screaming at you, but it's going to like hit you with a blast of hundred degree air as you walk yeah. behind it.
4: Yeah. yeah, yeah. The GPUs really have they've invaded the data center. Yeah, I mean they were already there somewhat, but now they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Th- it's interesting
1: that we uh, the custom appliance that so we have IX build for my company mm-hmm. is uh, one U, and it has a special proprietary motherboard that's narrower, oh. uh, and it has a, a PCIe browser, a riser mounted on the, like the edge of the motherboard, mm-hmm. so you can actually fit two full height cards in a one U chassis. Nice. Normally, you can only get one because you know the the motherboard is underneath the, the right. card mm-hmm. when you turn it sideways, but this is a special narrow uh, motherboard. So it's so off you, to the side and yeah. you can just so it so that in. you're down right to a bare yeah. metal case under it and you can actually fit uh, either a single dual height video card in it or in our case up to two of these single slot video cards. And actually uh, the riser has uh, a half height slot going the other way. Oh. So there is one that overhangs the motherboard so we can get like a 10 gigabit nick in there as well. That is. Slow. Although the newer design, the the built-in the two built-in Ethernet ports on the motherboard are actually 10 gigs, so we don't actually. Oh, you don't need have to, to worry about that. Yeah. yeah, we don't have to buy the extra card to get the 10 gigabits.
2: Have you guys ever bonded 10 gig ports? Ever uh, played around with that? I don't
1: think I have. No. Uh, when I needed to do the testing, I was doing some performance testing on SSH for doing ZFS replication over SSH oh, yeah. and seeing what I could do to get the best speed. I, I cheated and used uh, the machine at the FreeBSD network test cluster that had a dual-port 40-gigabit card Ooh. Uh, Ooh, instead of nice. trying to bond two of my 10-gigabit NICs together. To yeah. uh, I think the best I got was, I think, 18 gigabits a second. Uh, of ZFS replication before SSH topped out at the most it could do. Yeah, <laughs> hey, that's pretty good, though. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's great.
1: I think that's Netcat great. got up to 31 gigabits. Nice.
2: Wow. Yeah.
1: Well,
2: at, at about that speed, you're you're challenging your your PCIe backplane. <laughs> You know, you're you're getting up to some yeah. You're pushing a lot of that's a lot there, of data to go.
1: Yeah. yeah, and again, even at 40 gigabits, we're talking about you know you don't have very many nanoseconds to process each of those packets. No, yeah. uh, And so, especially when we're uh, looking at uh, performance improvements on FreeBSD as a router, where you have oh, yeah. to take that packet uh, at 10 gigabit, you have to take that packet in, do some work, and put it back out of the other NIC. Uh, and you have, I think it's 14 nanoseconds to yeah. do it. Make your routing decision real quick now. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's why, you know, being able to do 10 gigabits out of the card is not hard if you're doing the full, like, 1,500 uh, byte packets or if you're doing jumbo frames and doing 9,000 byte packets. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But uh, we test worst case scenario of the 64 byte packet. But you know, it's like all header and like one <laughs> byte one of time. data. Yes, right. Uh, totally. And. That's- you know, that, that means to get challenge. to get to 10 gigabits, you have to be able to do 14 point something or 14.8 million packets per second. Ooh. You have to receive that, decide how to route it and send it, it, it out. It out. Um, and, you know, for a while there, the best we could do is about 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really depended on the nick and stuff. And, and now we're we're solidly doing all uh, uh, 14 million packets a second. It's like, okay, now it's time to switch to 40 gigabit nicks and see what where the bottlenecks are.
4: Yeah. yeah, so is that mostly just a process then of finding each
1: bottleneck, knocking it yep. down and continuing through the stack? Yeah. And then being like, oh, well, we knocked that bottleneck down, but it turns out there was a second one that's like the same size and we got no improvement. Ugh. Or you finally knock one down and you get a big improvement. It's like, oh, nice. Uh, and then, you know... It's on to the next thing. Yeah, and that's right, thing yeah, and that's OK, right. well, now what's slowing us down? <laughs> uh, and then you know, as he's doing that, he's also testing the firewalls. So how sure, much slower sure. does a firewall get? Mm-hmm. It's like, why does this one firewall seem a lot faster than the other one when um, yeah, I was going to scale testing better? Both. Um, depending on the type of firewall, the more rules you have might actually make it slower. Right. Um, and it looked really weird, because at first it looked like, all right, as we add more rules, this firewall is getting slower and slower, and this one's staying the same speed. How's it doing that? Mm-hmm. And you're looking at it as, oh, actually, when you give it this list of rules, it recompiles that into a table yes. where it can just so do can just a lookup. Look so it doesn't have to check the packet against every rule. It just checks one rule that has this table of, of matches. Um, and it's like, oh, cheaters. <laughs> so they rewrote the uh, the test rule set to use a table and, and trying the size of the table. And like, oh, now that both firewalls yeah, the perform the same. And, you know, you really get into... It turns out benchmarking is really difficult. It's a whole uh,
4: own process, right, with its own. Because yeah. it's like, you know, the biggest
1: mistake for always makes is like, when you get a result, the first thing you have to do is ask why. And then uh, basically why five more times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and eventually then you it's like, OK. So if this test wasn't actually testing what I thought it was testing. I was testing, yes. I was testing uh, number of rules versus size of table, which isn't the same thing. And once I made it, you know, apples to apples, uh, I got. Turns out, I got the same. Very uh, like no, no
4: difference, or the opposite of what I expected. Yeah, you really seem like you really need to have understanding, right? You can't, mm-hmm. for large part, like just black box tests. They don't really mean much, right? Maybe exactly. you know your vendor has this, but it's like, how does that actually fit into the whole stack? Where are my real limitations?
1: Yeah, and it's saying that when you get the vendor benchmarks, you know, it's, it's like, oh this drive can do this many IOPs. It's like, yeah, if you do all linear and you do it exactly <laughs> this way, turns out the none best of my possible things are like that.
2: Yeah. Samsung is apparently notorious for writing their their drive benchmarks that way. You know, you have to you have to get like the full sixty four you know, Q depth on their drives yeah. to get that that amount of throughput.
1: Uh, Or, you know, back in the day, uh, ATI and NVIDIA both got caught cheating on, like, uh, standard graphics benchmarks, like uh, 3 D Mark and so on. Right. They, like, optimize for that specific test to get a slightly higher score than the competitor. It's like, sure, it gives you a better score, but when you play the game, you get a completely different result.
2: Oh, oh, so there are lies, damn lies, and benchmarks. Exactly. Exactly.
4: (laughs) It really is a statistics game. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, that's one of the other nice things is
1: uh, on FreeBSD, there's actually a statistics tool built in that one of uh, the FreeBSD developers wrote called Ministat. Is And that you right? give it, um, right. like, you know, you run each benchmark uh, before and after or whatever uh, five or more times, and you feed it the numbers from both, and it does the stats and figures out, all right, with 95% confidence, there's a 2% difference in these numbers. Beautiful. Uh, or you've actually, or, you know, while the numbers, the average and the median are pretty much are, are different, it turns out that there's actually not much difference here mm-hmm. when you look at it statistically. Yeah, you actually
4: look at the spread of the distribution. and Yeah,
1: and then it tries to draw a little ASCII art diagram and it's like, okay, that, that <laughs> part maybe is not so useful. A little over it But it can help you understand um, also, like, so I, I ran the benchmark 10 times and I got this average, but what I actually got, is half the results were at this time and half the results were at this yeah. time. The, the average in the middle, I never actually got a result anywhere near there. Yep. And then the median, it's like, well, if I got five and five, the median's going to be like one or the other kind of yeah. thing. It's not going to necessarily be the right answer either. And actually, from the graph, you can tell, all right, what I actually have here is bimodal. Totally. There's, it's So why is half the time it doing faster than this? half? Is it a cache effect? Uh, is it um, NUMA? It turns out, if you have a dual socket system, uh, if you're benchmarking certain things if you're trying to talk to the PCIe card that's connected to CPU1 but right. you're running on CPU0 you go across the cross connect and it takes a little longer and your performance will be worse so then you're using like the cpu set commander and trying to pin the cpu affinity of benchmark to be close to close to what uh, you're accessing to the the memory or the the nic that you're accessing or whatever and then suddenly that makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Or even just uh, when I was doing the SSH testing over a pipe, making sure that both sides were on the same CPU yes. and I wasn't copying memory back and back forth, and forth. And back and forth. That yeah. yeah, that's huge.
2: That's that's difficult to track down. You, you, yeah. have, to, you have to learn how, how, what PCI lanes are associated with what socket, what core. Yep. And yeah, the abstraction
4: not, really starts breaking down, right? You really have to understand the, the actual implementation of whatever machine you're using. Then.
2: Yeah, and, and not sometimes you can pick the wrong cores and so and sometimes like not pinning is more efficient yep
1: mm. and sometimes it's also like tweaking the scheduler like right uh mm. do i want to steal more often uh, you know the work's been on this core uh but that core's got a bit of other work going on do i steal it and bring it over here but in doing so i don't get to bring the cash with me uh, and it, you know that cache was hot, and maybe it, was, it yeah. would do better staying over there. Uh, but at the same time, you know if it's contending with some other process, maybe that process is going to keep blowing out its cache and giving me worse results than if I brought it over here. That's a lot of things to keep uh, to consider, right? And try well, to and get it right. Your results on a server might be different than what you want on a desktop, Absolutely. like uh, or a laptop. On a laptop, it's like if the core is not all the way busy, keep all the tasks on one core, so the other one yeah. is just in a low power state. Turn it off. Uh, and I and get more battery life. Uh, yeah. And then, it, you know, the same thing with, like, Turbo Boost. It's, sometimes it's faster to crank the clock up and get all this work done in half a second rather than to spend three seconds doing yeah. it at a lower clock rate. Because uh, while that used more battery, it only did it for a short amount of time, and then I got back to a low power state instead of being in a medium state for it's three a seconds. It, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so power management and scheduling and having a scheduler that understands power management <laughs> yes. is really complicated, and you end up with this thing of, you know, you have your laptop and your desktop, and then a server, and then a busy server, and they all actually need slightly different tuning.
4: Absolutely, yeah, right, totally.
2: Yeah, yeah, neat stuff. Yeah. So, going back to firewalls. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, the successor to IP tables mm-hmm. is NF tables, right. right? Okay, so there's a successor to that now too. I was reading a little bit about that. Yeah, What's is it? that EBF tables? E- e- no. eBPF is uh, eBPF.
1: B- eBPF is the the tracing framework. I think this is just a BPF-based uh, yeah. firewall thing. Right. Ah, so do you know what BPF stands for? A Berkeley Packet Filter. Yes. Ooh. Uh so you know, you're like, oh, look, if we uh, compile the firewall rules down to a BPF, we can match them fast like TCP dump does. Yeah. Uh, do you know what firewall has been doing that for 20 years? Oh, yeah. <laughs> IPFW on yeah, PSD. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, Yeah, it turns out there's a fast way to do a firewall. Yeah. It's because, oh, look, this uh, machine language is specifically designed to match packets. Exactly. It's really yeah. good at matching, matching. Packets.
2: packets.
4: Yeah, yeah
1: totally
2: well writing the writing rules is, can be difficult
4: yep like the, mm-hmm.
2: yeah just the syntax between uh, TCP dump and wireshark yep that they don't use the same syntax and I find yep. it continually confusing yeah, right. I'll jump from one to the other and context switching I have to I have I, to go I, back to the web page and look up more examples yeah. because I can't uh, remember them all
1: yeah back in school uh, for our firewall class we learned three firewalls IP tables uh, IPF, which is the, the predecessor to PF on uh, uh, FreeBSD and OpenBSD, and uh, Cisco PIC, although the, er, mm. uh, the, was it PIC? Sorry. Uh, the Cisco we had was literally like a 486-based appliance.
2: Oh, wow. Like, we had the right? old one. Okay, like yeah. Before they
1: made it a dedicated, it was like a regular 486 to, with yep. some firewall cards in it or something. Wow. It was but weird. the
2: Cisco pit, that's yep. been dead for a decade Oh yeah, should
1: have been. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it, it was pretty much dead when we were learning it. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was, you know, the syntax is pretty similar to what you would get on a newer Cisco, like an ASA or whatever. Sure. Even um, ASAs are out yeah, of fashion. Well, yeah, in particular, we had one client who was doing some streaming video. Uh, it was. Um, TV Ontario had uh, this system called Homework Help, where after school, they would pay some teachers to be available via like an internet chat thing to oh, help you with your math homework. And uh, every student in like grade seven through ten got it for free. Wow. Uh, if they were enrolled in, in a public school. Um, but. They would have a streaming video part, too. And they were pushing up to like 600 megabits out of the network. Uh, and their Cisco ASA couldn't handle couldn't, that. Couldn't uh, keep up. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So we, we replaced that with uh, return their, their dev server into a PFSense. And yeah. oh, look. And now we, we can push a gigabit with no, no problem. No problem.
2: All right. Yeah. I love seeing ZFS and go, go like 998 on my yeah. network.
1: Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, like I said, I had it going like 18 gigabits yeah, a second. The, I like,
2: I yeah, I just have gigabit at home. Yes, well, uh, that's reasonable.
1: <laughs> but even better now that uh, ZFS on uh, FreeBSD and Linux has the compressed send, so yeah. you're not decompressing yeah. the data, sending it over the network, yeah, like and then recompressing, re-compressing it. it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what, when
2: did what what version did that show up in? Was that a Seven point six. In previous D,
1: we don't have the same. Oh, ver- right. So oh, it uh, just showed open. up as a feature one day. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah. okay. laughs> it's been around long enough. I think I don't think it's in FreeBSD 11.1, but it'll be in 11.2 that comes out later this next month, um, or June. But because um, uh, that with, without that, what you ended up doing usually was set of send pipe. GZIP or XZIP so or uh, like PXE or, or whatever, yeah. uh, pipe SSH, pipe XZ, um, yep. pipe ZFS receive. Uh, just so you could have uh, it compressed over the wire. And yeah, then, because, uh. you know, especially if you had highly compressible stuff, like I, I a 45 gigabyte database that could compress down to like 10 gigs. Yeah, uh, totally. Compressing it. Uh, but then you could also run into the problem of, you know, with XZIP or GZIP, even on the lowest compression setting can still take a lot of time. And you end up not keeping the network 100% saturated. And it's like, ah, this could be going faster if it wasn't wasting CPU trying to compress stuff that's no good. So actually, uh, ZStandard, the compression algorithm out Mm, of Facebook, uh the command line tool has a a user-contributed patch uh, for adaptive mode. Uh, Because ZStandard actually has 19 levels of compression, uh, and they've actually extended that to have more levels now, or uh, negative levels that are even faster, but provide less compression than uh-huh. the minimum. Yeah, I see. Uh, the old minimum. Um, with the adaptive mode, you put it then like between ZFS send and mm-hmm. your ZFS receive, and it adjusts the compression level based on how much data is waiting to go over the network. Wow. So it keeps the network busy and, 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 and a pile of packets ready to go to the network. And as soon as those packets are piling up, waiting for the network, because so the network's the bottleneck, it turns the compression up. Because uh, you might as well spend some CPU time right. and make less You're data and anyway. send it over the network faster. But if the network buffer drains and now the network isn't going as fast as it could be, turn the compression level down and so that we're not, uh, you know, sitting there burning up CPU trying to compress stuff that's not going to compress or, you know, yeah. keep the network busy. But at the same time, don't send any more data than we have to. That is super fancy. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And so We've been
2: waiting for that forever. Yeah, yes.
1: Right? It's like, how, how did nobody think of this sooner? Like, even just for GZIP or something. Yeah, it's one of those things kind of floating around that you would assume. Yeah. Uh, Low-hanging fruit. And, uh, and finally, now that we have, like, uh, PI-XZIP or uh, even Mainline-XZIP has it now, mm-hmm. and Zed Sander has it, is threaded. Yes, So exactly. that you're using more than one of your cores <laughs> to do the compression. We've had these multi-core machines for kind of a while now. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, for a while, it, it made a big difference, um, to make sure that whether you compress it normally or with multiple cores, you would get the same compressed yes. file output, right. especially you know, if you're going to publish like the checksum of, of your compressed archive on their website. Uh, you want to make sure. Yeah, make um, it
4: easily reproducible. And yeah, and exactly.
1: For reproducible build stuff, right? which is another thing that's caught on in, in open source and so on now. if um, Sure, there's the source code, and, and there's the binary that you download and run. But how can we prove how that that, that source code was used to build that? Uh, so with reproducible builds, it's like you run this script and it uh, strips out certain settings, uh, right. like so we don't put date stamps in yeah, the binaries, totally. and uh, you know we don't put the host name of the machine that build built number it, or uh, yeah. and build numbers and so on. Uh, but so that someone can download that source code six months from now, uh, run the same build script on their completely different machine, uh, which might end up using <laughs> the same architecture, yeah, exactly. and end up building the same ISO file that you
4: download, Perfect. Uh, and make sure that you can verify that. Yeah, I'm really glad that that seems to have caught on. People are realizing yes. that it, you know, I mean, it's work, right? Like it's not a lot of build yeah, systems have to be changed or modified or customized. It's not
1: exactly fun. And in the yeah, end, yeah. it's not some new feature it's that people faster, are going to yeah, be... Yeah, there's no new
4: feature. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, it's kind of the not fun work. So it's been nice to see the Debian project leading that, but mm-hmm. also getting buy-in from other projects. And I think they've had... Two or three of these uh, world reproducible build summits, yeah. where they brought people together uh, to actually get, spend yeah just t- get a two bunch days of people hacking uh, on it. Yeah, a weekend of actually trying to get it together. And uh, I think part of it is they built this program called the Diffoscope that actually can look oh. at binaries and find where the differences are, so you can figure out oh that's that timestamp and go back there that and replace perfect
4: it. Perfect sense. Yeah, then you can backtrack and figure yeah,
1: out. Yeah. So uh, usually what they do is. Uh, like even for things that are going to have a timestamp no matter what mm-hmm. or where they can't easily change the format uh, they'll just hard code the date to a specific date so that it's always consistent uh, and it'll yep. be yeah as long as everybody uses that same date you get the same binary either way that makes
4: sense yeah, yeah diffoscope like, i'll have to play with that
0: yeah uh,
1: cuz it can become a, a big thing especially on some of the linux distros where the packages you install from your package manager are built on like a random developer's home machine.
4: Totally, yeah. They'll uh, get pushed you know, up some, to some archive
1: somewhere. Yeah, and in FreeBSD, we have a set of machines in a data center and they just build all of the packages. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's one machine and it just builds all 30,000 packages for AMD64 for this version.
4: Yep. And just does a big that build like
1: form and once every three days, it builds them. And then on the other days, it builds like i3d6, and then the next mm-hmm. day, it builds ARM64 or whatever, and it just cycles through all Turns of them. Turns through the schedule. Here. I think we have like 20 something builders that are yeah. all like, you know, Constantly building thirty-two or more cores with one hundred and twenty-eight gigs of RAM. That's beautiful. And yeah. Just that they're turning turning power Spitting into binary out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, uh, but you know, uh, some uh, a lot of projects just don't have that kind of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and so they have a more distributed build system, and it, you know, you, you'd be more worried about. <laughs> What else was going on in this uh, developer's laptop when he built this? Yeah, because right. the other thing is uh, our build system uses our jails thing, and uh, a completely clean operating system install uh, is where the package gets built. Nice. Yeah. So, like, uh, when it builds each package, it uh, starts up a completely clean environment, installs the dependencies yes. uh, from the binaries it built earlier in the process. Uh, and then does the one build, and oh, then throws it. it all
4: away. That's perfect. Uh,
1: and actually, it does a, a close off from the network as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, in a separate step, it fetches all the dependencies, it, it and then when stuff you're it building it, um, it's not allowed to talk to the network. So it doesn't uh, a configure script can't decide to randomly pull in
4: extra files yeah. and, and change the results of your build. That is, I've that's beautiful. I like yeah. that a lot. What a good system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I am constantly
2: dealing with my own build system at work. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's it's mostly make, and it's not super sophisticated. <laughs> but it's got a little bit of everything. We've got Perl scripts sure, in there. Sure, We've yeah. got Bash scripts mm, in there. Gotta have those. We've got uh, NSYS. Have you, ever, have you guys no. ever played? Ensis? do is, tell. Is, is the Windows packager that was introduced <laughs> in, like,
1: 1990 yeah. or
2: something like that. <laughs> And the the syntax of that is nuts. So I think I've seen yeah. something
1: like that. Yeah, I'm, you can. I remember back in my Visual Basic six days <laughs> building uh, install shield installers. Oh gosh, uh-huh. yes, I've been yeah. in those days myself. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, VB six. Oh yeah. Ant. So I have, oh, yes. I have uh, Ant for, we, we for use, Java building.
1: We use Ant to build the custom Java modules we put on top of the uh, commercial video streaming software we use. Mm-hmm. That makes
4: yeah. sense.
2: Yeah, and a part of my build script also copies Groovy files to Java and passes them through the Java compile step just to make sure that if we do have to take code out of the Groovy files and put them into the the main tree, Mm
1: -hmm. that they will compile. compile. So we
2: don't actually get the semantic sugar out of Groovy. Not a bit of it. Not at all. you just, wow.
1: Yeah. Uh, Same thing happens on FreeBSD. We uh, incorporate a lot of contributed software, Mm -hmm. Uh, like we pull in things from upstream. And sometimes those are, you know, ninja or or CMake or whatever. Yeah, right. uh, but you build all of FreeBSD with BSD Make. Mm, uh, sure. So we pull in that build file, it sits there, and we don't use it. And we pull out the files we want and have our own Make file. <laughs> uh, and then, or the port tree, like we were talking about, is, is uh, thirty thousand Make files that yeah. each uh, compile one program. That's dizzying. Yeah. The fact, it, like it does everything. It, it downloads it, checksums it, does the extraction, uh, builds it, or patches it, configures it, builds it, and then
4: stages it.
1: Builds a package out of it. And puts it all done in make. Yeah. Oh, so must,
4: there must be then some work done to keep those keep those current and keep the make file. Oh, there's there's the a team of like 300 yeah, people that right. just do that. Oh, yeah, totally. constantly. And
2: each of them knows when to put a backslash in front of a parenthesis. What yeah. what command yeah. do you use to <laughs> where you need to escape your parentheses?
4: Lots I think of them, of several, yeah, uh, yeah. But well, which I, one are you thinking of? I'm thinking of find. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, find.
2: Yeah, I I can't I can't go a day without using find.
4: Yeah, I do about find. It's probably yeah. I've been playing with some like fuzzy find tools as well, but it pretty much you know, anytime I want a server or anywhere else, it's yeah, find boom.
1: Uh, like we use it uh, to trim automatic recordings. Uh, we have one customer that only wants to keep a 30-day archive, so it's every file, every video file over 31 days old just yeah. goes minus, away. Minus m
2: time or minus c time. Yeah. yeah. How uh, many how many jobs syntax? out
1: there? Yeah, because the syntax is a little bit different on BSD. Or uh, with mtime, you can specify different units instead of only days. Oh, so 30, days. Like 30 days or you we know, yeah, 180 like hours. With, or with me,
2: I'm always I'm touching a file, and then if I need to, I have to use touch or something else to right. modify the 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 ctime on it, and, and then, then do a minus newer.
4: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not fun. <laughs> Yeah, That's funny. what you're saying how many jobs? Oh no. How many just how many, you know, how many pieces of like monitoring framework or backend yeah. processing that are just like a cron job and some fine commands to move oh, yeah. push things around.
1: You know, it's, it's gets back to that composability of yeah, Unix commands. Like the number of pipelines I've built that are like you know eight segments long. <laughs> oh absolutely,
2: yeah. It's it's always hack pipe, hack pipe. Like yep. you, you have this thirteen line yeah. long single command. Yeah. If it fails in the middle, well, Okay, how how do we deal with commands that fail in the middle of a of a of a pipe train like that?
1: Just exit. Well, of yeah. course, but <laughs> yeah. like, Abort. Like,
2: yep. like, at what point do you put the put the standard error redirect and know what command that came out of? Yeah, that's it's a good like, question.
1: Uh, good commands will prefix the error message with the name of the command. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Mm-hmm. But if you have three sorts in there, that doesn't help you. And oh yeah! No, it doesn't help uh, you at all. Yeah, yeah. You because know, even if they tried to put like the PID or something, it's like that doesn't mean anything in the middle of the pipeline. You, and, you can't, you can't yeah. recreate the PID when it's it's in a log file. Yep. Uh, and then the other one, was, um, a couple of years ago, we talked about this cool tool. I was uh, about to, bring to ask you about that. Pipe yeah. cut. Pipe yeah. cut. Yeah. So you you build it. So it lets you build the. They call them blades. It's the little bits in the pipe. Uh, and you can surf forward and backwards. That's uh, with a preview of like you know if you've got your file and then you, you're uh, you know doing grep and then sort and then unique and then sort and all this and you just left and right going back and forth through them and seeing a preview of what it's doing or. For the greps as you're typing the regular expression, it's showing you what parts of it are matching. It almost sounds like a mini that.
4: IDE for writing shell yeah, pipelines. For writing shell pipelines. So, is that available? Can yeah, is this it it, open is source? It a, uh, is
2: it a terminal based yes, one, or is terminal. it like a
4: tickle? Okay. No, uh,
1: it's, it's I think, curses or whatever. Okay. It's meant to run in a shell. That's uh, interesting. And then, oh, there's a, another one. Uh, Talked from BSDCAN, I think, 2014. Uh, they called it UniCage, I think it was. Uh, it's popular in Japan. Where they've actually like written like point of sale systems all in shell script. Wow. Oh, so like yeah. the barcode reader, wow. it plugs in as a keyboard and just like writes out the barcode number as yeah, standard, standard input, right? And they're doing all, and uh, they built some like analytics software with it and found that doing uh, a shell a, a big shell pipeline um, over like NFS with 10 gigabit network uh, was 25 times faster than Hadoop.
4: <laughs> I've seen some other things like that. Yeah, you know, for the right yeah. workloads, you can really go a long also, way just with, with the, classic the shell pipeline. With the shell pipeline, they could
1: save intermediate results easily, yeah, totally. And
4: yeah. so, uh, team up somewhere You know, if,
1: if you uh, change the shell pipeline, or you decide you need different results, uh, you can start with the intermediate thing instead of having to go all the way back to the beginning. Restartable at any stage in the process, exactly. Yeah, that's great. And you see that they did uh, a really nice style guide for writing their shell scripts where it was all like the pipeline was on like column 79 or whatever. And so you, it would,
4: you, you know, could watch as the data gets threaded through. Yeah, and yeah. it,
1: just, uh, it was pretty really, interesting.
4: Yeah, I think really we've kind of come back a lot of, you know, software has come, finally like come back and rediscovered some of the workflows. Maybe, you know, different tools, maybe different names, a lot of, like functional programming things. But a lot of them are kind of just what we've been doing in the shell the whole time. Yeah, you want a, you want a tool road. that
1: does one thing, takes an input, and writes an output, uh, and in such a way that it's easy to feed that into the next thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, too many programs try to humanize the output. And it's like, having that as an option is great. Yes. But m- maybe off by default would be better, but even if not, uh, or. You know, there's some detection you can do on um, whether the output is, is uh, a, a terminal or yes. not. Because right. uh, like ZFSN uh, protects you from shooting yourself in the face with a
4: whole <laughs> replication bunch of binary. stream. Yeah, uh, yeah more and more tools really seem script. like they have that. Yeah, like, yeah. You just not gonna, if you really want this, then tell me you want yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, you
2: get uh, used to using a minus N in there pretty quickly.
1: Yes, and that uh, that's the other <laughs> one I love about ZFS is almost every command that changes something has a minus N, where yes. it just prints out, this is what this would have done. Or like when you're adding disks to a pool, this is what the pool would look like if you did this. Yeah. And you're like,
4: nope, that's not right. Change, change, ah, that's how I want it. Take out the minus N, and then it does it. Those are great, too, for like working on bigger teams or things you where know, you can get that output, have someone else review it, check it off. Yes. Maybe it's even a CI system or somewhere, and then actually go run the results. Yeah,
2: yeah. OK, so uh, ZFS question. Sure. So, when I have a failed disk mm-hmm. in a pool, uh, say it's, uh, I've, I've lost a mirror, and it... You repla- mean half a mirror, right? Yeah, half a mirror, half. an element of a mirror, yep. that I get, a, I get this random-looking number where the device used to be.
1: Yep, the GUID, the globally GUID. unique
2: ID. Okay. And so, the GUID, in general, is something that I can say, re- put into a replace yep. command.
1: Uh, every device in ZFS has a grid. Every dataset has a grid. Every right. snapshot has a grid. Everything is grids. Yeah. Uh, and that's, just unique IDs you can pin yeah, the stuff uh, them. Mostly to deal with the fact that you could otherwise end up with two things with the same name and not be able yes. to specify which. If you've ever actually been on a system where there are two pools, both with the same name, when you do zpool import, it'll print the GUID for each, so that you can actually tell which nice, one you want yes. to import. I
2: have <laughs> never been in that situation. That is fascinating. But, yeah, but I you, have been you, in the situation where I've tried mount, like ha- having two different disks in a system with identical like partition labels. Yep. And it used to be Linux would freak out when uh-huh. you tried that.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. I've never it, tried this that. Is,
2: this is before Linux, like the udev system started yep, re- right. uh, doing its own GUIDing. So that makes sense. Yeah.
1: But yeah, uh, if you just dd uh, a GPT partition disk and you end up with a second partition with the same GUID, that's you're not actually supposed to do that. Yeah. Wow.
2: Uh, sure. Yeah. Oh, but there are there are times you want to actually recreate a disk with exactly the, uh, uh, the same the same right. GUID. But if you're yeah. going to
1: if you are going to reuse it, maybe you don't like that uh-huh. uh, and so on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah that, like if you do um, zdb-l on a, a ZFS disk, you can actually see the GUID of the root pool, uh, even. So if you have a mirror, you have the pool has a GUID. Then that mirror-zero device that's kind of virtual that uh-huh. has a GUID, right, and then each that. member has a GUID. No. And if you run uh, zdb-l, you can see each of those GUIDs. Mm. Uh, and also, like, it's a hidden property. But if you do zfs get GUID, and then a data set or a snapshot, it'll print out what it is. Oh wow! Really? Oh, so, yes. nice.
2: Okay. So so
1: because uh, I, I have a fun story about that one, but. Okay, go ahead. but-
2: Bu- building on my uh, my story, there is that I've I've imported pools that are missing their zil or missing yep. their mm-hmm. l2r, mm-hmm. and I want to re- I have to be able to remove them. Yeah, and so I've found that I can do a you know a zfs remove zpool, z-pool detach. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I can't say l 2 Arc name or yep. something like that. There's that would be the grid. Yeah, it's it, it's it's not intuitive looking at the ZFS status output w- quite what I should type in there for that. It yeah. it has taken some monkeying around, but I was glad that it was possible. I didn't <laughs> have to like rebuild the whole. That's pool one of those situations
4: where you're like, okay, what do
1: I what do I do here? Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> interesting feature coming up. They've uh, finished the work to be able to import a pool with a missing top level device. That's not just your log or cache device. Oh, oh, So wow. if you lost both halves of a mirror, uh-huh. you could still import the pool. It'd be read-only, and uh-huh. any data that only existed on the, the broken vdev would be gone yeah. uh, or missing. But you could still Everything else the you data. could still get. So oh, in particular, if you uh, do one of those screw-ups where you had, you, know, you have a bunch of RAID Zs and you accidentally add, attach a, a single disk to the end of it because oh. you forgot the log or cache keyword when yes. you're trying to add that yes. SSD. I've had that happen. And then you do the wrong thing and like blow that disk away and now it's not part of the pool anymore but now you can't import the pool because you're missing a top level VDEV. Yeah. You can import that and all you're missing is the last like 20 seconds of data or whatever.
2: That's excellent. Yes. That, that's a real, that, that's a safety net.
1: Yeah, or yeah. Uh, actually like some of my pools, uh, the way they worked was, you know, it was it started out as, as 12 disks and we wrote a bunch of data to it and then we added 12 more disks and wrote a bunch of data to it and on and on. So that means all of the old files are on this Vdev and the next set of mm-hmm. files are on this Vdev. So if we actually lost the whole Vdev because like three disks faulted at once unexpectedly, yeah. Uh, at least we could get 2 thirds of our files back. Yeah. Totally.
2: Yeah, or so someone walks in and starts shouting at your uh, your your
4: yeah, containers. Archives.
2: Yeah.
4: <laughs> it really seems like ZFS has got a lot just recently in the past couple of years has added a lot of those features where like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like mission critical it didn't yeah, prevent you really that. in most yeah. situations but it's just that, like, like that, nice to have. Where before you had all the, like, you know, the philosophical underpinnings, the the great design of ZFS, and now you have, as well, just like pretty much yeah. all the management tasks thought of that you could possibly exactly.
1: Run into. Uh, you know, ZFS goal from the beginning was always to make the systemman's life less hellish. Yes. Uh, but <laughs> a lot of quality of life improvements have gone in over the time, and it turns out now that you know there was always this concern that once uh, Sun and Oracle uh, went away with it that it was kind of going to die off and not really mature. Sure, but at, at this point, more than 50% of the code that's in OpenZFS today is written since the fork.
4: Wow. whoa, That's a wonderful Some thing. of that
1: is replacing and some of that is adding. Sure. But, uh, yeah. And then like this year we got device removal. So you'll be able to remove uh, single or whole mirrors by remapping the data onto other devices. And it'll just bounce yep. that out. And, uh, and then uh, Raid Z expansion is under construction right now. I saw the first working demo of it last <laughs> weekend. <laughs> So this, if you have like a six-disc RAID Z two, you'll be able to add a seventh disc to it and, you just, and just get more space. Wow! More space! More space! That more space. is
4: awesome.
1: Yep, yeah. it's, that's, that's m- got to
2: be some crazy math. Um, actually, that one's not so bad. Oh, yeah? It's just
1: some uh, shuffling. Okay. It's just uh, a lot where of where each thing goes. The, the very beginning involves a lot of carefuling, uh, <laughs> and then after that, it's just go really fast. Okay. Uh, luckily, that one's. Uh, Logically, not that complicated. Uh, There's video and slides about it at the OpenZFS Dev Summit from last November. Uh, If you want to, there's, it's not quite an animation, but a series of slides that shows how the data will be shuffled to make it work and how it's actually not going to be that complicated. Um, I like hearing that. I do uh, too. That's what we thought at first, and then then it turns out as you start doing it, you run into extra complications. Of course. (laughs) Extra carefuling. Yes. Yeah. Uh, But the the very first uh, cut of it that you can have now. Um, does it all as one transaction group? So once it starts, it's like N-n-n-n-n-n-n-n. like hours later it's <laughs> yeah, it <will> <laughs> done. you can't really do anything else in between. Uh, but that's just to prove that it works, and then uh, going to keep working on it, and it'll do it in, in sizable chunks that'll make more sense, and so on. Yeah, please right. don't unplug your stock exchange one. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then the other one was oh, you we are talking about the guids on snapshots. Yeah. So we got very confused for a while. I was doing incremental send receive, mm-hmm. and. Suddenly, the script was refusing to replicate this new data set. Uh, And so I looked. They definitely have a snapshot. These three snapshots are in common, right? They're exactly the same name. Why won't it use that as the incremental starting point and keep going? And it kept puking at me. And I was like, what's the problem? And eventually, I compared the GUIDs and realized they're not the same and realized my automatic snapshot tool was creating snapshots with the same name on both sides.
2: Oh, and if it's on cron, oh. it's the it's yeah. exact same second, probably. Well, it's if you, not so much if that, you but have a time uh, data
1: that's supposed to be the, the, the data set that on the receiving machine is not supposed to have snapshots created. It's supposed to replicate the snapshots from mm-hmm. the other machine. Yeah. But it looked like it was doing that because it had snapshots with the same name. But then I like the size isn't right either because it was zero. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, that snapshot script is including this extra data set that it shouldn't be snapshotting. Yes. Um I've, I've been also, bitten
2: by that a, a bunch, too. Uh,
1: I, which has led me to include the host name of the machine in the snapshot name. Oh, that's a good I idea. So so that, changed my
2: scripts when I heard you tell that story on, on, on the show. I yeah. went and I added host names to yep. things. Oh,
1: and because it turns out... Yeah, it's a uh, great yeah. technique. Because when humans name things, they might actually name two different things the same thing. We're not so good at that, really. Yeah, like uh, uh, we were looking over there. The one that drives me nuts is KVM. That's Mm -hmm. keyboard, video, mouse. It's a switch you use to switch between computers. Been in data centers centers all the time. And then some people over in the Linux land (laughs) there decided that stands for kernel virtual machine uh, and made some other thing that the same group of people talk about and call KVM. Yep.
4: And it's like, I, I have At my day job, we have a bunch of servers running KVM, and so they just get Through called KVM. KVMs. Yeah, right, it's very confusing. I need honestly, to attach so. a
2: KVM to the KVM
1: host. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Exactly. Uh, and so, you know, humans will name two completely different things, the same thing, uh, whereas ZFS, because it's a GUID, it means there should be no other data set in the world that has the same snapshot or the same uh, GUID as, as your snapshot. Yeah, And when you and think about you the fact man. that I uh, like. I'm creating ten thousand snapshots, and you're creating ten thousand yeah. snapshots, and there's no chance of them colliding. That, or well, a very, very, very small chance. chance. Uh, yeah, it's yes. a yes. big space yeah. to explore. Sixty-four yeah. bits is yes. a lot of bits. It's a, yes. And yeah. who and could ever need more? ZFS is a hundred and twenty-eight bit file system. Oh. oh.
2: So is there a script out there that will that will collate like, conflicting snapshots? If you wanted to. Something like ZXFIR, but so a little ZX,
1: smarter. Yeah, ZXFer is mm. not that smart. Uh, like, you mean to detect that situation? Yeah, but, like yeah. if,
2: if I, because it would be really handy if I had, say, an interrupted backup and I got to it a week later and someone had gone in and created some snapshots on the backup machine because they thought they would be doing the
1: right thing. So, and, it depends. Mm. Uh, so, in ZXper, uh and the way I configure it for my replication, any snapshot that exists on the destination that doesn't, lo- uh, that no longer exists on the source, is yep. deleted before the replication starts.
2: But isn't isn't that's that off normally the tail
1: of it? Uh, well, no, it, it does it up either direction, mostly oh. because it's not that smart. Oh. Okay, um, which can be a problem also uh, if you do push replication, and then the thing you're pushing from is down, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you so you start doing the work on the slave, and then the other one comes back up, and that's uh-huh. why I usually try to prefer pull. Because
4: yeah. then that doesn't happen, it, right? You have a little more orchestration there.
1: Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, you have to like you know kill the SSH key or something so that the other thing can't do it.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's a good
1: trick too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that reminds me. Does does ZFS on Linux support ZFS allow yet so that you can delegate permissions? Oh.
2: You know, I don't. Know. Last I don't last, last year when I was playing with that, it didn't.
1: Okay. So I don't. I do I, all I my backup if, like, replication stuff without having to have root, and like no sudo or anything.
2: Yeah, all of my stuff is done with sudo commands. Yeah. And so definitely, like I, I create a bu user that right. that has the cron jobs, but all the cron jobs are sudo.
1: Ah. Whereas mine, it actually the, the se mirror user. Oh. Uh, um, has the ZFS permissions to send and receive, create and destroy snapshots, but not other stuff. Mm-hmm. Or I can even say, only in this sub-dataset. So in that there's like pool name slash M for MIR, uh, and it can only create snapshots and destroy snapshots in there. So if the user gets compromised, they can't destroy any other yeah. data sets and so Yeah,
2: on. I would totally like the, like the permission system mm-hmm. to, to be. To but be I guess no the, the Linux VFS thing.
1: layer is a lot different. And so, yeah. Right. yeah somebody just has to sit down and do a lot of work.
2: It's someone probably is and is getting interrupted as we speak.
1: Yep.
4: That that happens too. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it looks Where's like the, a as of 12 months ago 070 Oh. RC4 had it. So there you go. Yeah. Hey. I think it should exist Okay.
2: Now. Well, I got to play with that.
4: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh,
1: I think when you, maybe with 18.04, Ubuntu is finally shipping 0.7X uh, ZFS because I know they were only on like 0.6.5 yes. in the previous version. Uh-huh. Uh, I have not yet played with 18.04 because yeah. it's
4: just been busy. But that, well, I'm going to give that a And it came out on like Thursday, oh, Thursday afternoon. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it seems like a long time, you know? It's yep. Sunday already. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I, okay. I probably ran it in a container. Maybe I did. Yes, okay. There we go. I did. But that doesn't really count, right? There's no kernel think, or anything. I think that OBS machine is running it, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, Noah and I were, like, waiting for the release, and it got delayed. And, <laughs>
2: uh, yeah. and yeah, speaking yeah. of Noah, there
4: he is, working yes. very hard, balancing his laptop. He's playing a video game, actually. He just has that face that he looks like he's working hard. No. <laughs> That way no that's one bothers great. you. It works yeah. every time. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. yeah, that's the... Go the hell away. <laughs> yeah.
4: I feel like I'm finally having more success now that Ubuntu is shipping the compiled driver. Like yeah, I, there's um, there's the ZFs, a lot of skepticism of people. Yeah. You know, They're like, oh, I don't know if I trust it, this kernel module, but now it's like...
1: It's just, well, yes, uh, it's the, the the complication was always, you know, you upgrade your kernel, kernel version changes, and you need the newer thing. Yeah. Uh, but the ZFS on Linux people got their package repo Uh-oh. more in line now. Uh, yeah. And you can get the, the new version compiled for CentOS and Ubuntu uh, pretty easy now. Yeah. because uh, yes, the the other problem is you know people have the Ubuntu ZFS and they they want newer ZFS because where all the features and the bug fixes yeah. are. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, yeah, I definitely would suggest anyone who is uh, following following the latest OpenZFS open ZFS tag when they when they do their compile wipe out their user local lib zfs libraries yeah. also do do a find command wipe out your zfs and spl uh, kernel module directories under lib modules Oh, yeah, sure uh-huh i'm and trying
1: to remember it in because you can have library conflicts yeah. right. i think it's 0.8 or 0.9 they're finally going to merge the spl into zfs so there'll only oh, be one right? thing instead of two instead separate of recos. Two separate well, I, I think and that'll be
2: 0.9 two or three other Libraries too,
1: you need right. to pull in for that too, I, right? Yeah. But those, <laughs> those those two are the big components. There's ZFS and SPL, and more importantly, in the ZFS on Linux GitHub right now, there are two separate repos, right? Uh, and, and 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 totally. You, you got go to go yeah. uh, Luckily, SPL doesn't change much anymore, and that's now it's stable. layer. Yeah. Yeah. Is is
2: SPL used by other projects? or was uh, it? No.
1: Okay. Uh, so. We have something kind of like it, but in because Solaris is based on the same free B, uh, BSD base from 1970-something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or 80-something, um, it, they're a little less far apart. Uh, so we have, like, uh, under sys, cddl, contrib, open Solaris, a bunch of header files that make the things and then you a couple of little files and- to, uh, yeah. you know... Oh, it turns out the parameters for allocating kernel memory are slightly different and in a different order. Right. Yep. Uh, but or like convert their lock commands into our lock commands and so on. Yep. Uh, but it's a, 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 thin a, a much much thin, of... thinner layer. Oh, that's uh, nice. yeah. And we had the advantage of being able to incorporate it into our kernel, <laughs> yeah, so it just right. shifts. You don't have as to deal with all it. this nonsense. Uh, and do. so in mm. the end, you get uh, a kernel module called OpenSolaris that brings all the compatibility stuff, and then uh, a kernel module ZFS. That's nice. Yeah.
2: So about. Two years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and this was probably actually on a BSD. Now that you were talking about speeding up the the configure, like the make configure step, because that w- that's always the most expensive part of running a build because it's usually single threaded. Do you remember that conversation?
1: Was that with Richard Yao from OpenSUSE? Well, I, I, I don't think know. It's the only it time was we'd a- be talking about this. <laughs>
2: yeah, but. But I'm, I'm curious if, if any of your con- conversations in, in the past couple years have have brought that up again. Because speeding up the make configure step would definitely be a super duper lifesaver. Right. You, the, you, there was like mentions of how to cache that output.
1: Uh, there's some, um, I, think, I think what you're talking about is when we were talking about doing cross building. Okay. So when you were compiling ARM binaries on oh, an uh, x86. X80, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the originally the way you did it was QMU would run the whole script as uh, native ARM and that would be slow. Ooh, uh, so yeah, we had so optimizations slow. of like a version of the shell compiled to know the, about ARM but actually run on x86 or like a version of GCC compiled okay, that yeah. generates yeah. ARM binaries but actually runs but on x86 to run on. Uh, oh. and so that we basically run the shell scripts and, and uh a version of GCC that run native on amd 64 but do the stuff so that the configure scripts and the shell scripts for ARM binaries would run much faster on x86. Oh, um, that's interesting. You know, depending what you're doing, um, a lot of packaged versions of even the source code for uh, stuff... Uh, if you download a version that's designed for, say, CentOS, it'll basically run configure on CentOS and ship that an already configured version. Right, yeah, I see that a lot. Uh, and then you have to run, like, auto-reconf auto yeah. to uh, make it redo that. Oh. Um, that.
2: That's one I'm not familiar with, auto-reconf. So uh, it's
1: know. something you mostly run into when porting software to FreeBSD, because okay. it'll run auto-comp for... Linux. Or more importantly, if you're actually changing some of the flags. Yes, exactly. Like, um, in the FreeBSD ports tree, you get a menu where you can, like, I want to compile FFmpeg with these extra things added. And so you have to throw the old configure and do a new one. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: It would be great if there was some kind of multi threaded. M- sure. It would also be
1: great if the configure scripts weren't, like, 250 kilobytes of auto-generated meaningless junk. crazy
4: yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, exactly I mean, autoconf the, is terrible how it works at all I, I'm continually it is, amazed
2: it is ab- about as black magic as you're <laughs> going to get
4: like you know. in the olden days it made
1: sense when you had to check for like Irix that didn't support this yeah because sure. yeah. Uh, yeah. the one that got me for a long time was the autoconf bug when yeah. we switched to FreeBSD 10 it would look at it, and because it's uh, the comparison they did in Shell was kind of wrong, it thought FreeBSD 10 meant FreeBSD 1.0, oh. which meant it was like, oh, that doesn't support dynamic shared libraries. I'm going to statically <laughs> compile everything. Uh, oh, yeah. And some apps would be like, sorry, we don't support statically compiling. It's like, this I is FreeBSD 10. Yeah. This is FreeBSD 10. It's not 1993. <laughs> We've we can, had this a long time we, Yeah. yeah so that we actually had a step in our port through where you have to go through and patch all the automake files to be like no 10 and 1 are not just because it starts with the number 1 does not mean it's
4: FreeBSD 1
2: wrong substring match those
4: things are so fragile people like I run into broken version checks all the time yes
1: and, and it kind of you probably didn't assume it would be a problem when you wrote the script to detect FreeBSD 2.0 in, in 1997 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then it just... Lark's there until it breaks. You know, autoconf is copy and paste for 20 years, <laughs> yes. it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> and
2: different versions of Linux also have different autoconf behavior. Like in, in Ubuntu, Autoconf will run reliably as root, but not as a user. And this is, um, as I grew up, was a big no-no. You never used to compile anything as root right. ever. There was just no, no excuse for that.
1: On, on FreeBSD, autoconf is a third-party package, so it's not, not installed by default. Ah. So oh, okay. it's like yeah. a dependency you install yeah. if you're going to compile some GPL apps. Yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and so that does mean that you can get different versions of it over time.
4: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, that's but I mean, tough you always too. get a newer version, which is <laughs> sure. usually okay. Yeah. yeah, hopefully it's better. Mm-hmm. Or they fix that darn yeah. bug you were. Well, at some point, bad.
1: you know, you get configure scripts that are like, you need autoconf at least two point one three to run this. Yeah, right. Ah. Yeah. And it's like, well, at least I can get that now. I guess. <laughs> yeah. 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 Whereas if it was shipped in the OS, it's like I'm on the five ter- five year LTS branch.
4: I don't got that version. Yeah. yeah. What, are we what are to do? it a whole separate version somewhere Yeah. yeah. Gosh.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well. Anyhow, I I find uh, altering like the make flags for a, a bunch of networking things that I want to compile under like Ubuntu, mm-hmm. it just got a lot harder because the default default library choices yeah, in yeah. like sixteen oh four added like a bunch of like dash golden kind of options uh, and and it would just halt, like. Uh, it's just so frustrating because so many of the packages we're using are like CentOS and Fedora based that I have to I have to, to chase to down the, the the config flags for T-tiny it.
4: Tiny little differences.
2: And and it's it's frustrating to figure out.
1: Well, imagine trying to do this BSD where everything assumes it's probably running on Linux. <laughs> and it's never been yeah. tested on FreeBSD. Maybe it's only one or two little things that need changing. But it's also like the fact that almost everything by default—that's uh, everything not included in the operating system—goes in user local yeah. oh, lib yeah. or user that's, local that's include, right. and, right. So, and yeah. that's not always in a lot of configure scripts' default uh-huh. search paths. No, so, no. so that's like a, every program, <laughs> you're like dash dash include yep. user local include. That's and so
2: right, on. yeah. And and when you start compiling ZFS on Linux, all this, all, all your output goes into user local yes,
1: and then you have to... You that's have to, have to, where it's supposed to go. Everything that part of the operating system <laughs> goes in your local directory.
2: And that means that anything like the DKMS packages yep. all those scripts, even your uh, SE, uh, your systemd uh, targets and systems, those scripts will have the wrong paths in because those are all going to point to slash user, right? Uh huh. So you have to uninstall It doesn't search just both? By, what? <laughs> Oh goodness! So yes, you have to uninstall your, all of your app or your RPM, right? Packages. Whatever old ones that you have yeah, that because, are left things behind. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's actually one of the reasons that I got pretty good at writing system D's uh, unit files is because I wanted ZFS to come up the right way.
4: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Right. You so can I you had can compile your own version and then you can write your own unit yeah. file. Mm-hmm. All
1: right. Well, any final thoughts before we wrap up from the, our live show here at Linux Fest Northwest?
4: I think, I think it's just been a great fest this year. Yeah. Awesome turnout, tons of great talks, and the one, the only, Alan Jude, to join us. Yeah, we go. yeah it's, we got Jed it's, Jed been, a, it's Jed. been a
2: pleasure. I've, uh, I've been harassing you guys from a distance for a number
1: well, of years. Uh, so how many of the podcasts on Jupyter Broadcasting have you been on now? Have you ever been uh-huh. on Linux Unplugged via the Mumble Room? No, I haven't. Oh, you we would love
4: to have you, absolutely. Okay.
1: Please join us. Because we usually, usually do it, a Tech snap. Wait, yeah. wait, sorry, uh, we interviewed you was... on BSD now, mm-hmm. uh, outside yeah, on your yeah. bike. That that's was great. Right. That was yeah. a good. I like that interview. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. And um, I've been, yeah, I, you know, with the Nerf guns.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, so, yeah. So you've been uh-huh. on uh, the Linux Action Show yeah, before. Yeah, I've been so on
2: the live yeah. stream yeah.
4: Uh, at Fest a couple yeah. of times. Yep, totally. So yeah. if we get you on Linux Unplugged someday. Yeah. You will be yeah, a great I'm, voice of reason to add yeah. to the, the clamor. I'm
2: usually in the middle of being an actual professional when that's on. So that's my... That's my my difficulty there. Well, if you ever end
4: up with a sick day or just a day off. I need a sick day. Yeah, I think you do. Maybe maybe Tuesday around 2 p.m. Pacific, something like that. Yeah. Turns out lunch didn't sit well with you. That's a shame. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Thanks, guys.
4: All right. With that charming note, I guess we're out of here.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed this bit of a divergence from our regular format, but man, it's always good to hear from Alan and I love Jed and Wes too. So it's so fun for me to be able to sit back and get to listen to an episode of the tech snap program. Now, if you are a patron over at patreoncom slash Jupiter signal, you may have heard this earlier in the year. It's just one of the many perks of being a Jupiter signal patron. Thanks to Jed, Wes, and of course, Alan for sitting down and recording that and We'll be back soon with our regular format. And in the meantime, we need those questions and war stories so we can hit the ground running. TechSnap.Systems slash contact. And of course, grab every episode when we publish it right from our feed, TechSnap.Systems slash subscribe. Thanks so much for joining us, and we will see you soon.